0: I love singing Christmas songs. The anonymous hymn, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is a a great song. Uh, It doubles as a prayer that God himself would come to Israel and rescue her from her distress. How appropriate that we sing that song in a minor key. For those of you that are a little musical, we sing that in the key of, of E minor, which means it's not a happy, peppy kind of song. It's kind of solemn. It's meant to remind us not so much of the joy of Christmas, but the observance of it. It's not a song of celebration, but it is a song of hope. It's particularly when living in, in dark times that our suffering, that the, the oppression that we feel, um, that, that in our waiting, we would have the hope that it would lead to rejoicing. And I think that's what makes that, that chorus that we sang and that you all sang out, a little bit louder and so impactful. It's kind of the echo, the cry of our hearts. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Those words don't just apply to old ancient Israel. They apply to us as well. But, but here's where the author of this, this hymn so appropriately captures the, the the thought that he conveys. The, the joy comes in the hope of deliverance, not in the actual experience of deliverance. And Israel's hope was that God would come and redeem them, and it's in view of that hope that they waited. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today, and we confess we are not a waiting kind of people. We don't want to wait. We prefer the microwave, sometimes over the oven, and we live in a culture, as we said earlier in our liturgy, we live in a culture where we are people called to patience, but we live in a uh, culture that's, that's woefully impatient. And so again, we confess that to you. And uh, during Christmas, we, uh, we join in with the culture and we, we do everything that, that they do, yet you call us to wait. And so Lord, help us. Help us during this Advent season to, to see the purpose of our waiting and in that purpose, Lord God, to, to know that we don't wait alone. God, give us the, uh, the the ability to wait faithfully. And as we unpack the scriptures today, we pray that you would help us to wait with a little bit of joy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. So we've been experiencing Advent. We've been observing Advent as a church the last four weeks. This is the fourth Sunday of, of Advent. And Advent is a purpose, a time of purposeful waiting. The, the term Advent technically means coming or arrival, and during Advent, we're looking at the historic celebration, or, or rather the historic observance of Christmas by, firstly, looking back to the coming of Jesus. The, the Israel prophets uh, prophesied for hundreds of years that uh, there would be a Messiah that would come and that would alleviate all of our problems, that he would not only forgive us of our sins, but he would come and he would save us and carry us into Uh, some future promise. And so we look back on those times, and we see Christmas as this time of, of great joy. The baby was born in the manger, and this baby grew up to be a king. We also look forward. We anticipate Jesus coming again. When Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, he told those early disciples that he would come back, and they were thinking, man, you're going to come back really soon. And today we join with the disciples and hoping that this king will come back again and that he again would be our king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And as Christians, we've said during this series, we live in the, the, the two poles of, of Advent. We live between these two Advents of Jesus. It's an already not yet kind of reality. Jesus has come, that's, all, that's the, the, the already, and we experience as Christians the benefit of that. We experience the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of our souls. He gives us the Holy Spirit with the promise that he will come again. We also look forward to this time because we live in a sin, sin-filled world full of suffering and we ourselves experience a little bit of that suffering and in that we look forward to the day that Jesus will return again. And that's the not yet, already not yet. And that makes us awaiting people. But you know this, the, the hardest part about waiting particularly as people of faith, as we know how this is supposed to end. It's supposed to end in victory, the the book of Revelation tells us. And so there's a little bit of agony in the journey as we try to get there. Jesus' blood has been shed. Our debt has been paid. Forgiveness has been purchased. God's wrath has been removed from us. Adoption is secured. Our future is certain. We even experience a modicum of great joy in this life that we live. And yet, the end has not come and for that we wait there's still longing aching yearning and hoping to our lives that we can't shake the long and waiting continues and this idea of waiting has been our theme as we've journeyed through advent this this season and in the backdrop we've used various versions of this beautiful hymn O Come O Come Emmanuel have y'all even noticed that we've been singing that or playing that or showing you a video of that every week. That's been purposeful, obviously. Emmanuel means God with us. Nick preached this sermon three weeks ago from Isaiah 2. Those words come from the perspective of ancient Israel who was in trouble and needed help. And the prophet Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and encourages him to turn to the Lord. Not only turn to the Lord, he encouraged Ahaz to be so bold as to ask God for a sign. Isaiah tells King Ahaz, turn to the Lord and invite him to come, to come to Israel and to provide help. Israel was under not only oppression, they had on their doorsteps uh, an enemy that was about to attack them, actually uh, a combination of, of foes coming against them. They had no resource in and of themselves to save themselves, and so they needed to call upon the Lord for his help. And you know how that story ends. Ahaz, in his pride, refuses to do that, and, um, and they were invaded. Interestingly, in this hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, each stanza begins with, with these words. It says, O Come, and then there's a name portraying who this one who is to come is. We sang it just a minute ago. Come, O Emmanuel. Come, O Dayspring. Come, O Rod of Jesse. Come, O Desire of the Nations. Each one of those names is rooted in Scripture, and when we say, O Come, that's meant to be a prayer, albeit a, a simple prayer. And even as we were singing this morning, you guys sounded good, by the way. I couldn't help but think that that's not just a prayer, it's a great word for us. It's an articulation of the gospel. We're in trouble, just like Israel. We need help, just like Israel. Our sin has brought us to despair, just like ancient Israel. We can't make it on our own. We need forgiveness, just like Israel. We need the Lord to come and grant us grace. And the promise of the Bible is is fairly simple. Paul says it clearly in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that really is what O Come, O Come, Emmanuel does for us. This hymn invites us to call on the name of the Lord in its many facets because though the circumstances of our lives may cause us to suffer and long for relief and, and wait, Every name of Jesus is full of hope and promises us joy. Now, we could very easily take the stanzas from that hymn and unpack them and understand what it means to to beckon God himself to come to us as Emmanuel and as the day spring and as wisdom from on high. But we're going to turn to a more familiar passage of scripture that speaks to us of Christmas but also encourages us to find hope in the names of Jesus as we wait. We're going to read from Isaiah 9. We actually did in our liturgy already. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. The words will be on the screen as well. We're going to read the first seven verses and see what these would, uh, would have for us on three, what has it? three days before Christmas. Read these words with me. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, You've heard those words before, but perhaps uh, the context deserves a little bit of, of, of background. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet for all of Israel. He prophesied during the days uh, of, of, of many kings of the northern kingdom, particularly here in context. Uh, the, the northern kingdom has already been taken into exile, and uh, Isaiah will um, uh, orient his prophecies towards Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah is, is being led by a bad king, King Ahaz. And Assyria is already defeated and taking taken northern kingdom into exile and now threatening to overtake the southern kingdom. God again uses Isaiah to come to King Ahaz and he encourages him. That despite the circumstances they are in, an enemy on the doorsteps of their territory, that they should trust in God. And if you have read through Isaiah's prophecies, if you read much of the Old Testament, I mean, that, that really is the message of all of Isaiah. He says this in, in various prophecies over and over again. Israel, have faith. Turn to God. Israel, have faith and turn to God, even if, you, even if you're, there's suffering in your midst, even if there's uh, enemies at your doorstep, even if you don't know the answer to how things are going to turn out. Have faith that God is your salvation because of the covenant that he has uh, invited you into, that he would be your God and you would be his people. But what Israel found out through Isaiah, actually, actually they know this because they're living it, is it's a bad, king, a bad thing to have a bad king. It's a bad thing to have a bad king. You know, as Americans, we don't know what it feels like to live under a monarchy. We don't want to know what that feels like, do we? But we all have experience in this. We've experienced um, living under prideful or rebellious authorities—a boss that treats his employees uh, poorly. Uh, Some of you have come from homes where you would say, "I had a bad parent." Maybe you had a sibling or a friend that, that tries to control you or tell you what to do, and I mean, you, you have to live with that. And it makes living with and on these people uh, uh, kind of tyrannical, right? Uh, those people are kind of hard to deal with. And so this is Judas', Judas lot. They, they are stuck between a rock and a hard place primarily because they have a bad king. And in the backdrop of Isaiah's words, particularly in verse 1, the Bible is telling us that God comes to his people and alerts them through the prophet that he sees their suffering and he plans to intervene. And in this case, what we're seeing initiated through Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 9 is he's launching the salvation of the world and he's going to do it through a baby that's going to be born uh, to a virgin. Whenever foreign armies marched to invade Israel, they always came uh, and attacked in the north because of its proximity to, obviously, the other nations around it. That's why Isaiah mentions Galilee. Galilee of the nations, he calls it, in the north. And so the people of Galilee were no strangers to being attacked. They were no strangers, in this case, uh, to to slavery and despair. And so Isaiah prophesied, despite Israel's circumstance of Assyria threatening them, that the darkness they are now experiencing would result in a great light. Look at verse 2. You have multiplied the nation. That's that, verse 3. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In other words, the people of Galilee in particular would know God's salvation. They would be the first ones to see the light of their Savior. Fast forward 700 years, Matthew's gospel tells us this prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus. We'll look at that in a few minutes. And so Isaiah prophesies that the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. With light there's joy. And so here's what Isaiah is saying: Joy is coming. Hold on. He tells them why in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. When, when Isaiah mentions you, he's speaking of God himself. Isaiah is seeing really two prophecies. In verse 3, he's, he says, God is spreading his light to more and more people, multiplying a remnant of believers barely hanging on. And he's going to transfer this remnant into this great multitude that no one can even number from every tribe and every nation. It's reminiscent of what we read In Revelation, it talks about the the end of the world. He's giving us a picture of that, and the joy of this remnant-turned-multitude is not going to be meager. And he gives a description of it. He says it's like joy, the joy of workers bringing in a huge harvest. He says it's like the gladness of soldiers gaining victory on the battlefield and getting to enjoy the spoil. Now. There aren't many farmers in here, I'm supposing. Some of you might have grew up on a farm, but sometimes these analogies in the Bible just can, can roll over us. So uh, let me kind of give you what I think he's, he's saying. He, he's, he's giving us this analogy. It's like getting a bonus on payday. He says, this is the kind of joy that you're going to experience when, when God brings this light into your midst. It's going to be a Christmas bonus, and when you open it up, like, you're going to like faint on the floor. He says, it's like, it's like the locker room of the Washington Nationals right after winning the World Series. Did you see the pictures on the news of that? Like champagne popping everywhere. Guys are like turned upside down, drinking out of kegs and stuff. And that, it, it, was, it was that kind of joy. Joy, I probably shouldn't have said that in church, Right joy unspeakable and full of glory kind of joy like exuberant joy that's the joy that this light is going to bring to their lives to our lives and then verse 4 he gives us another picture of what this darkness uh, turned light is going to do. Isaiah says, he says, it's going to be like the, a freedom fighter, and he mentions Gideon, so he's talking about the likes of, of uh, Midian, so he's talking about the likes of Gideon and Judges. Gideon was a reluctant leader that God used uh, with a very small army to, uh, to come against and break the power against all of Israel's oppressors. And so Israel should anticipate this kind of light coming, but more than that, they should anticipate the joy that comes from having a king like this, a, a good king. He'll deliver them from their oppression. And in verse 6, verses familiar to all of us, he tells us how this is going to happen. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A pastor friend of mine, very well known in the Christian world, Ray Ortland says, God's God's answer to everything that's ever plagued, like modern society, is a child. But not just any child, a special child. And Isaiah describes this special child. He'll be born in the lineage of David, and God is going to bestow on him four unique titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's, he's going to be the Messiah himself. He's going to be able to give us direction. He'll be an everlasting father, which means he'll have an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will not end. He's going to be a, bring a peace that will never end, and his kingdom will be a kingdom of justice. This would have been an important picture for ancient Israel in this critical moment of their history. Why? Because they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. They couldn't have moved left or right without without any relief. This picture of this coming king who'll bring righteousness, peace, and joy, it's what they needed, it's what they yearned for, it's what they long for. But this really is an important picture for us too. Why would I say that? Because we want justice. We might not articulate it that way, but we see things that are wrong in our world, and we want them to be made right, and that's what justice is. We see crimes and bad government and kids being taken advantage of. We see injustices left and right, and some of us even think this, even if you don't say it, if, there's, if there was a God in heaven, there, there shouldn't be this kind of injustice in our world. But here's where prophets like Isaiah and throughout the Bible would, would encourage us, hold on, don't, don't lose sight, don't lose your hope, because the Bible tells us in verses like this that justice is on the way, that all wrongs that you see and that you experience will be made right, that, that all bad is going to be dealt with. There's, there's justice coming our way because there's a king coming who will set everything right. No one will be looked down upon because of their ethnicity or the color of their skin or their last name or what they do or don't have. It will be a kingdom of righteousness. God will make a way for all relationships to be made right. Don't we long for this? Even if you can't articulate it, this is, the, this is what we're waiting for. This is the grand waiting that, that so, um, so plagues us. We're waiting for someone to care for us, we're waiting for someone to bring peace and justice and to make things right. If only our lives were under the kingship, or, because we're Americans, the headship of someone who could bring this kind of stuff about, even in the moments where life is not all we wanted to be, if we knew that it were coming, it would help carry us on. And I, I would argue, it would be worth the wait. That's what Isaiah is saying. We're not Brits. We're not living under a monarchy. We don't want to. We don't even like the idea of having a king over us, but we're all waiting and wanting those who lead us to be right, which means we want them to be righteous. And so for 700 years, the Jews were waiting for a king like this, like like Isaiah depicts in Isaiah nine, who would end their oppression, bring them out of exile and bring peace. And this passage reminded them, it gave them hope really. Your waiting is not in vain. That, That king, he's coming. Fast forward 700 years and the gospel writer Matthew reaches back and he offers these same words as we read in Isaiah 9, showing their fulfillment in none other than Jesus the Christ. This is what Matthew says, verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he being Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun of Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Matthew says, all right, Israel, you've been waiting for justice and peace and a righteous king. Here he is. He's arrived, light and joy, the end of oppression, wisdom from above, the direction that you need, and peace. It's here now, and it's here because Jesus has come. So Matthew, in his biography of Jesus, shows us Jesus is not just the child born in the manger. Jesus is the king. He's the king to end all kings. And uniquely, that's why Jesus' next words in verse 17 are this. He says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand those aren't the words that we expect right we don't expect Matthew to articulate that we don't expect Jesus to say that but those are the words that Jesus says and we, we don't use that word much particularly the word kingdom but to be sure Um, We all have our kingdoms. A kingdom is a domain. It's a realm. It's where you have power over yourself and those things that belong to you. We all have personal kingdoms, your car, your house, all the stuff in your house. Around the holiday time, the TV remote control, right? You're all sitting in front of the TV, and you're deciding uh, what you're going to watch together. And uh, in most houses, whoever has a remote has a little bit of control, and that person gets to decide whether we're going to watch yet another holiday movie that you've been watching since like October, November time frame. Whether you're going to watch, uh, you're going to stream something on Disney Plus. Maybe watch Baby Yoda a little bit. Uh, <laughs> or perhaps you could do the right thing and watch a little football, right? Watch some sports. But here's the thing with, uh, with our, our kingdoms. We're, we're protective over them. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. In our kingdom, and we don't, we don't want anybody invading our kingdom. And that, that's, that's what Jesus came to do. That, that's Jesus' purpose. That's what he's saying here in Matthew 4. He came to be a king over everything in your life. There's one occasion that the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him to teach them how to pray. And Jesus, uh, he says this, when you pray, say this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so when Jesus tells his disciples to pray like that, he's telling them to pray that they would ask God to remove their kingdom from themselves and help them submissively, submissively give themselves to Jesus' kingdom. That's a bold prayer. But when Jesus comes, he tells us, make room, not for yourselves, but make room for me, the king, in all the aspects of your life, when Jesus is king of everything, it's only then that he's reigning over you. There's another occasion that the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, "Well, well, where is your kingdom? And we learn in Luke's gospel, Jesus says uh, a summation of this, the kingdom of God is really wherever I'm reigning. Specifically, he says, it's in the midst of you. It's in you. And this, no doubt, is kind of sort of what Isaiah is saying in different language, when this this baby is born in the manger, he's not going to stay a manger. He's going to grow in the likeness of God, and he's going to live a perfect life because we can. He's going to die in our place for our sins on the cross. He's going to resurrect and ascend into heaven, and before he ascends, he's going to send the gift of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And Jesus comes to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he's going to come in the form of a wonderful counselor. And as a wonderful counselor, as we receive him, he has the best ideas and strategies for us because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so how do we receive this wonderful counselor? Well, we should trust him. We should follow him. And in faith, when Jesus comes and dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, he'll be a mighty God which means he has, he's able to defeat all of our enemies. He's able to defeat his enemies, and he'll do so easily. And so how do we respond to a God that comes to us as a mighty God? We hide behind him. When Jesus comes and dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, he comes as an everlasting father, and he'll come with endless love, and so we get to enjoy him. And when Jesus comes to us as the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us to God, while we're still his enemies. But above all, here's what Isaiah foretells. He says Jesus comes to bring his dominion. Look at verse 7, back in Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then he says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's what Isaiah is, is encouraging us to, to have hope in. It's that everything that we've been waiting for is fulfilled in Jesus. Justice and righteousness and, and eternal peace. And when our lives are fully submitted to this king, it assuages our waiting. In other words, it, it makes it easier. But it gives, it doesn't make it easier, but it gives it purpose. But it can lead to joy. And notice when he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, he's, he's telling us in no certain terms, this is something that you couldn't do for yourself even if you wanted it. But as we wait, this is what the Lord is doing for us. And so let me ask you, Transit Church, what, what might this look like? This waiting? This hoping? But more importantly, just this idea of wanting something that leads to joy. You know, a lot of times we get joy wrong. We can think that joy is uh, associated with anything that's favorable that happens to us. I get a favorable circumstance, and and that's joy. Everything in life being okay that's joy. Sometimes we say joy is just me being happy in the different parts of my life. Having a new baby, a new car smell, unexpected gift from someone that that you know or perhaps it's a gift from someone you don't know this happened to our family this week Uh, my wife sent out a, a group text to our family and the picture was this beautiful bright orange box guess what was on the inside jenny's ice cream like six pints of jenny's ice cream and here's what made the joy even better we had no idea who sent it to us it's this beautiful card with beautiful words of of warmth toward our family And we had no idea who it came up. I found out who it was later on that day. But for the moment, there's a joy that came with that gift. And sometimes, you know, things like that bring us joy. The Bible doesn't describe joy like that. And so we can be confused as to where actual joy comes from. Biblically, here's joy. Joy is when you live with Jesus as your king. That's what Matthew is telling us. Joy is when you choose to live with Jesus as your king. So naturally, the natural question for someone who waits is, well, well how do I get this kind of joy? And we have to look no further than Jesus' own words in Matthew 4.17. And here's what Jesus says. These words are going to surprise you. Jesus says, repent. Some of you are just like, oh, Jeff, how can you say that on like three days before Christmas? Those, that's not a Christmas sermon. That's not the word I was expecting to hear. Why couldn't you say something like peace and righteousness and, and baby Jesus and like stuff like that? That's what we want to hear on Christmas. Goodwill to all and peace toward men, not repent. I mean, who says that? Jesus says it. Jesus says repent. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near you, which means the king, the king himself is is near you as well. And the king with his kingdom brings righteousness, peace and joy. And Paul would add in the Holy Spirit. Repent means to turn. And so when you repent, you're turning from all those parts of your life where Jesus isn't king and instead you're turning with your life, uh, away from lives lived without Jesus, and you're turning uh, to where He has unhindered sway over all of your life, all that you do, all that you say, all that you think. It's trusting Jesus. I, I, in my mind, I, I want to say it's simply trusting Jesus. But I mean, really, there's there's no way to simply trust Jesus. And in fact, I think uh, a word for us today is some of the ways we lack joy are connected to the ways that we're not trusting. Or maybe I'm just talking to myself. And so here's repentance. Repentance is turning to the reign of Jesus over our lives. And when we do that, we can have joy. Joy is when you live with Jesus as your king. Ultimately, what we celebrate at Christmas is is this idea. This child born on Christmas is the king to end all kings. He saves us from our failures. He lifts, us, uh, he lifts us by his own justice and righteousness. He's Jesus Christ the Lord, our crucified, risen, reigning, and our coming Savior. And to bring this full circle, that's why we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Here's what this, the, the, the O, the O come, signifies. It expresses the overflowing joy in the ways the king has already brought redemption. But it's also the tearful yearning of the, of the not yet our very lives yearning and longing for the yet-to-come redemption. It's the glorious promise uh, of of, of glory that we have yet to see, but that we hope in the consummation of this world, a new heaven and a new earth, new bodies, no more sin. And so what are we left with? We're left with with this hopeful confidence. Jesus is going to do exactly what he said. He's going to come. And as we wait, what do we do? We cry out, rejoice, to our own hearts, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Transit Church, rejoice, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these words of hope. Thank you that we can hold on to your words when our hearts grow faint, when the waiting is hard, when we feel the pressures of life and the world coming against us, Lord, when our our belief fails us, you leave us with words of hope. You encourage us to rejoice. Rejoice because we serve a God who won't fail. Rejoice because God will give credence to his words. Rejoice because what God has said he'll do. He's already proven that to us. Rejoice because of the hope of the Holy Spirit within you. Rejoice at Christmas because a Savior is born. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope he is. And even in our wedding, Lord, we rejoice on Christmas Day and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Would you come and save us again? And it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.